We thank you for your word that we get to engage this morning. We thank you for a baptism this morning that indicates a new life in you that you have caused. God, we thank you for being God. We thank you that there's no other like you. We thank you that you promise that you'll accomplish all your purposes and that nothing that happens on this earth will keep you from fulfilling every plan you ever had. God, we love you, and I pray that it would be so this morning that we would, we would love you with all our hearts. I pray that, that, that we really do desire to come before you uh, with clean hands, with clean hearts, and as we talk about the details of that this morning, my prayer is that you would uh, allow us to engage your word the right way. I pray that you would inform us. I pray that you would warn us. I pray that you would encourage us and equip us. Lord, we can study all we want, we can sing all we want, but nothing changes in our hearts or our lives if not for a change that happens by your hand. And so we're completely dependent upon you this morning for every, to have any understanding in anything we engage this morning. Lord, we love you. We thank you for Jesus, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we were at Graham Park, and we were in uh, 1 Timothy 2.8. It's been mentioned earlier. In 1 Timothy 2.8, it says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And what we saw last week is that men in every place pray, lifting holy hands, that our hands lifted before God. It's a sign of teachability. It's a sign of vulnerability. And it's a sign of searchability. And the, the indication in the Old Testament was that if you come before God with hands that are dirty and filthy, and you've done nothing about sin in your life, that the result is death. And so this morning, what we're going to be looking at is God's design for cleansing hands and purifying hearts. We're going to look at how God calls us to do everything we can on our part to make sure our hands are clean and our hearts are clean. Because we know that as we, um, as we looked at last week, that our hands are an indication. It's a metaphor for the condition of our heart. So the title of the sermon this morning is A Violent Community of Faith. I'll say that again. The title of the sermon this morning is A Violent Community of Faith. And our text is Colossians 3, and let's go ahead and go straight to the text so that we don't have a misunderstanding of the violence that we're talking about. I encourage all, if you have your Bibles, read along and engage this text. The word, as we engage it this morning, is the way that we're informed, and it's the way that we're made able to do what we're talking about this morning. So in Colossians 3, verses 1-17, through It says this about a violent community of faith. Verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears then you also will appear with him in glory. And this is where we begin to understand the violence. In verse 5, put to death, put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once, in these you two once walked, when you were living in them, but now you must put them away. You must kill them, put them to death. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion and kindness and humility and meekness or teachability and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms 
and hymns and spiritual songs as we've already done this morning and we'll do again after the sermon. With thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Our focus as we talk about what it means to be a violent community of faith, I'm not calling anyone to any outward expression of violence in our community. I want to make that clear up front. But we are called to be a violent community of faith. And that comes in verse 5. When the Apostle Paul, inspired by God, calls us to an utmost level of violence against sin. And this isn't just the sin of those, those sinners out there. He's talking about right here, right here at home, our sin. And he calls us to an utmost level of violence against, violence against sin. Put to death, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. To put something to death is not a neutral phrase. You cannot sort of kill something. The call is to put it to death, to kill it, to violently crush its source of life, cut off the air supply, sever the artery, don't wound it, don't lessen it, don't manage it, kill it. I want to be very clear in our approach to sin this morning. Don't, don't manage, don't lessen, kill it. Murder it. Strong words, yes. See, the results and the implications of disobedience are also not neutral. Just as you can't sort of kill something, our response to being called to put sin to death is, is not something that can be neutral. We're called to put to death that which desires to put us to death, that which wants to kill us. Sin is corrosive. Sin is not something that we should put up with at all. We're called to put it to death because it desires to put us to death. So to more, feel, uh, to more fully uh, feel the weight of the, this call to arms, as we'll call it, I want to take a few minutes to look at uh, the words of the Apostle Paul in another piece of text, some words of some other great preachers, uh, words from a mother, and finally words from Jesus as we consider the weight of why it is so necessary to be on the violent offensive. The violent offensive, that's a phrase you're going to hear a number of times this morning as we talk about our approach uh, and how we handle sin. It's a violent offensive. It's not a timid, defensive, um, reactionary thing when we're dealing with sin. It's a violent offensive. Turn to Romans 8. Paul also wrote this, and what he said in Colossians 3, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. He says it in another way here in Romans 8. And I'd like to read verse 8 and verse 13. Verse 8 says, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Then you jump down to verse 13. It says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Not you might die. Not death is a possibility. You will die if you live according to the flesh. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is, this is huge because apparently the difference in the responses to this call, the difference in the responses God calls you to put sin to death, if we're obedient to that response, it means life. If we're disobedient to that command, it means death. Another way to say that is that there is one way of living that leads to life and another way of living that leads to death. There's one way that we can live obediently putting sin to death and that leads to life. There's another way of living where we all together kind of abandon the command, and that way of living leads to death. One mother wrote in the front of her son's Bible, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. John Owen put it another way. He said, be killing sin, or it will be killing you. He went on to write a whole book about it called Mortification of Sin and Believers. And I want to share, I'm going to share something from uh, one of the sermons that uh, Piper preached on this same thing, John Piper and there are many sermons and many books and many blogs and many things written uh, about this thing that we're talking about this morning, putting sin to death. The reason for that is that we desperately need to be regularly reminded that we're called to put sin to death because sin acts in such a way that it wants to numb us and dull us to its presence. And so, there are, like Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun, but there are many books and many sermons and many things that tell us put sin to death because we desperately need to be stirred up by way of reminder as a body. So if you've heard all the details in this sermon before you've come here, great, hear them again and be stirred up by way of reminder because sin wants to dull your senses, wants to numb you, and it wants to kill you. So it's important. So Piper states in his sermon, 
There's so many good things written. I could have just shared 800 quotes this morning and said amen and gone home. But I wanted to share just a few. This says, we owe the flesh nothing but enmity and war. Don't dally with your destroyer. Don't be a debtor to your destroyer. Get out of debt to the flesh. Don't pay for your own destruction. If we don't make war on the flesh and put to death the deeds of the body and the spirit, like Romans 8 and Colossians 3 say, if growth in grace and holiness mean nothing to us, then listen to these strong words, then we show that we're probably false in our profession of faith and that our church membership is a sham and that our baptism is a fraud and that we were probably never Christians and they were probably not Christians at all and never were in the first place. Those strong words. Ed Welch, a guy who wrote uh, A Banquet in the Grave, makes this state. He says, There is a mean streak, a mean streak to authentic self-control. Self-control is not for the timid. When we want to grow in it, not only do we nurture an exuberance for Jesus Christ, but we also demand of ourselves a hatred, a hatred for sin. The only possible attitude towards out-of-control desire is a declaration of all-out war. And then he gives an example. He says, there's something about war that sharpens your senses. I think Ben may have shared this before. You hear a twig snap or the rustling of leaves, and you're ready to pull the trigger. Even days of little or no sleep, war keeps us vigilant. Again, it's a violent, offensive in our approach to sin, not a timid, reactionary, defensive thing. It's a violent, offensive. And so if all of this sounds extreme, if it sounds like this real over-the-top approach to sin, probably the most hardcore words were spoken by Jesus. So turn to Matthew 11. In Matthew 11, verse 12, what Jesus is doing here is he has sent out the apostles to go and share the good news and the things that are going on in his ministry. And he, he has gone to their cities to teach and to preach. And so he's standing before these crowds who are used to, uh, who have heard previously from the apostles, and he's telling these crowds about John the Baptist, and he's talking about the kingdom of heaven. And in Matthew 11, verse 12, he makes this staggering, huge statement. He says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and violent men take it by force. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and violent men take it by force. This does not mean that there's a bunch of violent men that have overthrown the kingdom of heaven because that's impossible. God's the king. It ain't going to happen. What this means is this. If you desire the kingdom, if you desire heaven, take it violently by force. That's what he's saying. Violent men take the kingdom of heaven by force. Sissies who manage sin are not the ones who inherit the kingdom. He's not calling you to a timid approach. Violent men take it by force. That's a big statement. Seven chapters later, Jesus shows us how we violently take it by force. You can just turn a few pages over to Matthew 18. Seven chapters later, he gives us an example. How do we take this kingdom by force? I mean, it almost sounds like crazy talk here. He's really over the top. But how, how, does, how do we take it by force? Surely he's going to bring it down a little and let it make sense for us. And in chapter 18, verses 8 through 9, he doesn't bring it down at all, but he does make it make sense for us. How do, we violently take the king, how do we violently take the kingdom by force? Verse 8, and if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, hack it off and throw it away. Okay, that's easier. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. Hello. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into the hell of fire. Now, when you hear those words out of my mouth, you can, oh, he's getting excited. He's, he's really going over the top this morning, talking about sin. He wants to get us all riled up. I'm quoting Jesus. When I say hack and gouge and take it violently by force, I'm quoting Jesus. This is not some shock jock who's trying to take you off guard. That's not what Jesus is doing here. In fact, what he's doing here when he says violent men take it by force, hack and gouge, when he says these very hard things, what he's doing, this is what Christ shares to show us what is best. This is what Jesus has chosen to say to show us how to respond to sin. 
to show us where we will find the most joy and where he will receive the most glory, which is actually supposed to be the same thing, our joy in his glory. So if you go back to Colossians 3, which is our original verse, we see that it says, put to death, put to death what is earthly in you. We, we don't always view sin with this, dis- this disdain. Like there's a disdain there. There's a hatred for sin. When, when Jesus says, if your hands, see, what, the way that we live as Christians is God gives us these options, uh, not options. He, he paints a picture of two ways of living. Again, the one that leads to death and one that leads to life. And he says, you can present your members, your, your, your members like your hands, your feet, your eyes, your mouth, your ears to sin for unrighteousness. Or you can present them to God for righteousness. So uh, what you do with your hands and your eyes and your feet and everything else, you can present it to sin and it leads to unrighteousness and that's the way of living that leads to death. Or you can present your hands like the clean hands like we talked about last week to righteousness, to God for acts of righteousness. And so we don't always view sin, and there's reasons we're going to talk about it here in a minute, with the kind of disdain and hatred and contempt that we should view sin with. I mean, look, the words that Jesus used, hack and gouge. Sin does not always trigger in us the type of violent offensive that it should, that Christ calls us to. It doesn't always trigger in us. Like when when sin is, is in our lives or when sin pops up in our mind and we have an opportunity to sin and present our members to sin for unrighteousness, we are not always triggered, like an immediate trigger where something happens And we realize, okay, there's sin in our midst, and we should put it to death. We should kill it violently. Much like we just killed the lights. It's okay. We should kill it violently. It doesn't trigger that. So I was thinking about how, like, different things that trigger people, like things that happen where all of a sudden you're in one state of being, and all of a sudden, bam, I mean, you're... You are immediately triggered to another place. And I got to thinking about how when, you know, young men are joking around and someone says something about someone's mama. Trigger. What'd you say? You're talking about my mom. And bam, there's a trigger there. I got to thinking about the trigger that happens when, like a mother whose child has been threatened. This mom can go from making cupcakes and wiping her child's face off to when her child is threatened, she will rip your face off. There's a trigger that happens. It's a trigger. And you get, she goes from one state of being to another state of being. And so I was trying to think of it more precisely. And I was thinking about you know, being triggered, like realizing something's going on and I've got to change the way that I am. I got to go from one state of being to another here. And I was thinking about this. And just imagine with me, this is a false, or not false, this is a made up scenario, uh, fictional. And, uh, and, and imagine this with me. Imagine you're laying in bed, and at 2 a.m., you wake up to someone at the front door trying to break into your house. Imagine that. You can imagine how it would feel. You can imagine you'd be triggered in some way or another. The intruder is immediately a threat to the life of your family. So this is where I'm going to put myself in this position and think, how am I going to react? At this point, I spring to my feet, and as fast as I can move, I put myself between the intruder and my two daughters and my wife. And I will not gently ask the intruder to leave. I will dismantle him. (laughs) He's a threat. When he comes through that door, before he can get his bearings, I'm on the offensive. I'm all over him. And I'm not going to wait to see what room he wants to go to first. I'm not going to do that. It's a violent offensive. I'm not going to wait to see what room he wants to go to first. And my aim is to put an end to any plans that that intruder would have to harm my family. Why? Because I value their lives that much. I value their lives that much that I'm going to put an end to any type, any plan of harm that you would have to my family. And if we value our lives and the lives of our friends and the lives of our family and the lives of our community, we will handle sin the same way. We won't dabble in it and then wait to see what happens. We will put it to death before it has an opportunity to harm us or our friends or our family or our community. The problem is that culture... The culture, and you've heard this a million times, and I'm going to remind you of it again. Culture bombards us with lies that numb us to the reality of sin. The reality of sin, it wants to kill you. Not just physical death, but eternal spiritual death. Sin's aim is to make it so you never get to experience the joy of being in God's presence for eternity. That's what sin wants to do. That's the reality of sin. 
Our culture bombards us with lies that numb us to the reality of sin. For instance, I'll give you an example. I saw an advertisement this week for sinfully soft bathrobes. Sinfully soft bathrobes. There is nothing cuddly or soft or bathrobe-like about sin. Sin aims to kill me. Bathrobes do not. Sin is more like a rabid pit bull with a bad temper than it's like a bathrobe that's soft and cuddly. See, we have these things and we're bombarded. That's one example. You can drive down the street and see multiple other examples. It's not cuddly. It's not soft. It's not bathrobe-like. It wants to kill us. Jeremy Bridges, Jeremy, Jerry Bridges wrote a book called Respectable Sins. And as I read this book, it quickened me to some of the things you're hearing today because I read this book and I was going, oh, I didn't even think about that. Oh, I didn't even think about that. Things like the sin of uh, pride and anxiety or, or the sin of, of, a, uh, of a critical spirit and, and we cloak it in righteousness and all these things that are mentioned in this book. And I'm sitting here thinking, oh, I didn't think about that. And I realized as I was reading that book, I'm not seeking every day and every moment to put sin to death in my life. Evidently, there's a lot of stuff that's kind of kind of just made its way in and it's done what it wanted to do to numb me to its reality and to dull my senses to its presence. So in his book, Respectable Sins, he observes that we have even created an entire lingo that minimizes the reality of sin. An entire lingo, an entire way of speaking that minimizes the reality of sin. For example, corporate thieves no longer steal. They commit fraud. It sounds more corporate. It sounds more respectable. But they, they're, not, they're not called thieves who have stolen. It's just called a commitment of fraud. People, are no longer, uh, people no longer commit adultery. They have affairs. See, it's a lingo that dulls and numbs us to the reality of the sin. An affair sounds, doesn't sound as horrible as adultery. Another one that's shared is people are no longer guilty of the sin of homosexuality. Their lifestyle is simply referred to as an alternative. This is a lingo that, dumb, that dulls our senses and numbs us to the reality of sin. Am I picking on anybody who is being... Uh, wounded by these sins? Absolutely not. But I know that I have no, there's no possible way that I can help them by calling their sin something that it isn't. There's no possible way that I can encourage someone to put sin to death in their lives by saying, well, it's really just, it's not as bad as you think. That's not a good approach to sin. We're called to murder it, kill it violently, and put it to death. We must not allow these cultural standards to intoxicate our minds. When we're being lulled in and, and we're we're made numb to the reality. Our minds are really being intoxicated. And like everything else in the life of a believer, we have to be so certain of God's promises that in the midst of the hardest trial, we are sober-minded. We're not intoxicated by cultural influences that make us numb to sin. We see sin for what it is. We know it wants to kill us. And so our aim is to put it to death before it has the ability to do so. So back in that Colossians 3, we ask the question, how? Okay, I get it. We're violent. I get it. We're supposed to kill sin, murder it, cut its lifeline, sever the yard, or crush the windpipe. However you want to say it, kill it. How? How do we do that? In Colossians 3, we ask how. How does God intend us to violently put sin to death? How do we hack? How do we gouge? No one was ever encouraged. No one ever actually cut their arm off and was like, Jesus wasn't like, that's what I mean. That never happened. So it's, it's in a spiritual sense, somehow we're called to hack and to gouge. In Colossians 5, it says, it talks about sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. In Colossians 3, sorry, there's no Colossians 5. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. How do we do this? That verse that we saw in Romans 8 earlier gives us our answer. The verse that we read where Paul says the same thing in another letter to the Romans in chapter 8, gives us our answer. How do we put this into death? How do we hack? How do we gouge? It says in Romans 8, but if by the Spirit, by the Spirit, but if by the Spirit you put to, deed, to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you kill sin, then you will live. This is not one of many options on how not to be killed. This is the only option. I want you all to hear that. This is not one, hey, give the Spirit a try, because I've heard that the Spirit does wonders on killing sin. This is not one of many options. This is the only option for life. Put sin to death by the Spirit. So if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It's, it's not, there's no middle ground there. That's the only way to put sin to death, is by the Spirit. 
Now, turn to 2 Corinthians. It's just a little bit after Romans there. 2 Corinthians 1. And I know we're going to a lot of different scriptures this morning, but it's, it's important for us to connect these dots because this is kind of a bird's eye view, big picture kind of message, and we've got to be able to connect these dots. Ben would call these satellites that give us a, a better understanding of where exactly we're standing. In 2 Corinthians 1, verses 21 through 22, 2 Corinthians 1, 21 through 22, it says this, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and has also put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. This is probably the most important part of this message. We must make this connection. From this verse, we know that God gives us a Spirit. So, we put sin to death by the Spirit. The Spirit is given to us by God as a seal that He established us in, us in Christ. So the, the result of that is this, and this is the, one of the most important parts of this morning. Only forgiven sins can be put to death. Only forgiven sins can be put to death. You cannot kill a sin that has not been forgiven by God. I'll say it another way. Because God has established us in Christ, and because God has forgiven our sins in Christ, and because God has given us the Spirit as a guarantee, God has made us able to put sin to death. The only sin that can be put to death is forgiven sin. It's an, we see that also with Abraham and Isaac. We, we engaged it in our Wednesday night study this last week. Kind of like, God will provide the land that He requires for the sacrifice. Like the very thing that God requires of us is the thing that He's going to provide. And He requires of you that you put sin to death, but He gives you exactly what you need in the Spirit to be able to do so. So the only sin that can be put to death is forgiven sin. So interestingly, the same way we put sin to death as believers is the very same way that we entered into this journey of faith at the beginning. That it's God who gives His Spirit and establishes you in Christ Jesus together. Again, Jerry Bridges in his book, he describes God's role in this process. What it looks like for God to give us His Spirit and then come along and say, put sin to death, kill it. But what does God do in this process? He describes God's role and he states this. God is, as it were, coming alongside me and saying, we're going to work on that sin. Or more appropriately, I changed what he said, we're going to put that sin to death. We're going to kill it. But while I am doing it, I'm providing everything necessary for you to kill that sin as God, I want you to know I no longer hold that sin against you. It's a forgiven sin. So the only sin that you can put to death in your life is a sin that's been forgiven by God and a work that He's done, nothing you've earned. See, understanding that we're putting forgiven sins to death, that we're violently murdering forgiven sins, keeps us from the misunderstanding that in killing our sin, we are somehow earning God's favor. We don't earn God's favor. The message today is not, be a violent community of faith and put sin to death so that then we will have a good standing with God. That's not how it works. God has established you in Christ by the gift of the Spirit. And so the only sin you can put to death is forgiven sin. So that understanding keeps us from that misunderstanding that, okay, I've got, I know at least of these sins and I'm going to go put them to death and hopefully then I can go before God and have a good standing. That's not how it works. That's backwards. The only sin we can put to death is forgiven sin. And another thing that this does is it stirs us up to thankfulness. Thankfulness. Can you imagine God coming and saying, I have paid that sin. I've paid the debt, like the thing over here, certificate of debt, paid by the cross. I've taken care of that, and I'm calling you to put it to death. And while I'm going to help you in every way by the work of the Spirit to put that sin to death, I no longer hold it against you because it's forgiven in Christ. The only sins we can put to death are forgiven sins. So then the question would come up. Put sin to death. How? By the Spirit. How do we get the Spirit? God gives the Spirit to us as a gift. So how does the Spirit enable us to put sin to death? That's the next question. How does the Spirit enable the children of God to put sin to death in their lives, to murder it violently? How does, uh, what is the work of the Spirit that makes us to hack and gouge and kill and crush and destroy the sins in our lives? What does the Spirit do? How does that work? And that's found in Ephesians 6. Just a few more pages to the right there from 2 Corinthians. Ephesians 6. 
Ephesians 6, verse 17. It's a very short verse. It's amazing how much it says. Ephesians 6, at the end of the book, verse 17. says this. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Steve Mayo had a sermon where he talked about this and made some beautiful, uh, some beautiful, showed us some beautiful truths about that sword and how it fits our hand over time. This morning we see it take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This little verse really sums up everything that we've talked about already this morning. God has given us the gift of salvation. It is the helmet that keeps your skull from getting crushed in the war. No one can take your, your salvation from you. That's a gift given by God. There's no circumstance so dire, so horrible, so tragic that can rip salvation from you. It's a gift from God and it's a helmet. It keeps our skulls from getting crushed in the war. And how appropriate in the spirit that we're given a sword to put sin to death. We're given a sword. You don't use a sword to spread butter. You don't use a sword to manage a war. You use a sword to kill. And our sword, according to this verse, is the Word of God. This may not be new news to anybody in here. But this is the only offensive weapon we have to put sin to death. We're called to put sin to death every moment. Anytime sin, is, we are, we're mindful of the sin. This helps us to be mindful of the sin. This shows us how to put it to death so that we're not presenting our members to sin for unrighteousness. God's wrath is towards unrighteousness because unrighteousness suppresses the truth. That's not what we're designed for. That's not what we're created for. We're created for His glory as His children. So we have a sword and it's these scriptures. So here's the implication. If you have abandoned the scriptures, you have abandoned the call that God has placed on your life to put sin to death. That's a big, huge implication. If you've abandoned this word, if, if, if your, your Bible is lost and covered in dust somewhere, you're not really sure where it is, that's probably similar to how you're actually taking the call to put sin to death. If you've abandoned this, you've abandoned that call. Likewise, if you dabble in the scriptures... You're dabbling with the idea of putting sin to death. And the thing that we knew from the get-go is that you cannot sort of kill something. You don't kind of kill something. I was thinking about a, a guy who goes hunting, and he comes home with a big cooler. What'd you kill? Well, honey, I sort of killed it. And then he goes, that, that would be a horrible circumstance. It would make a bigger mess. It would make a bigger mess than you started with. I was talking to an, a guy who sort of killed an armadillo, and it made a bigger mess than, than he started with in the first place. You don't dabble in the Scriptures. You don't just dabble like, oh, I'll read something cute, feel good for the day. That's, fun. That's not what our engagement with the Scriptures is. If you're dabbling in the Scriptures, you're dabbling with the idea of putting sin to death. And this is one of those phrases that could be taken out of context and be pretty incriminating, but you're not being the violent killer that God called you to be. You're not being the violent murderer of sin that God called you to be. See, the way we view this word, the way we... The weight in our lives that we feel about engaging this word is really affected by how we view what it does. If we know that this is the offensive weapon for putting sin to death, and the only offensive weapon listed in the whole armor of God, then we will value this. We won't dabble in it. We won't abandon it. We'll value it highly. And I was thinking about, um, I'm thankful that God called a sin of mine into light before this sermon because it really helped me uh, to understand how we use the word to put sin to death in our lives. And so I'll, I'll share my sin. Um, uh, it's always fun get a room full of people and share your sin. I, I have I have realized that when I study the Word for about three or four hours at a time uh, in an afternoon or something like that, I inevitably inevitably feel guilty. Guilty. If I have an afternoon where I get three or four uninterrupted hours in the Word, I inevitably feel guilty afterwards. Guilty. As though the way I spent my time is inferior to someone with a real job. That's how I felt. And I was trying to trace this back. I was like, God, why do I view the scriptures like that? Why do I view it as like an like a afternoon snack or something that's a treat rather than something that gives me life and allows me to put sin to death? And I was thinking about that and I realized that, I've recently realized that this has come from years of hearing people say something that I once said to ministers. Wow must be nice to sit and read your Bible all the time. Mm. I've said that before. So as I share that, it's not me pointing a finger at you, it's the Scripture pointing a finger at all of us. 
I've recently realized this has come from years of hearing people say to ministers, wow, must be nice to sit and read your Bible all the time, as though we were a part of a perpetual feel-good self-help seminar. Let it be clear, there's nothing cushy or cuddly about studying your Bible. Yes, it leads to great comfort, but in the same way that an arduous labor leads to a beautiful baby. It's not cushy and cuddly. There's pain involved. It's hard. The weight is sometimes feels so heavy you can't hold it, but God provides the Spirit to enable us to be able to. It leads to comfort in the same way an arduous labor leads to a beautiful baby. When a pastor, preacher, teacher, or Bible study leader takes seriously the call to study the Scriptures, we should be so thankful. That's one of the things I'm most thankful for in my engagement of other people in my life is that I've got to engage other men and women who take seriously the call to handle the Scriptures the right way and, be, and really be handled by the Scriptures rather than handle the Scriptures. So when a pastor, preacher, teacher, Bible study leader takes seriously the call to study the Scriptures, we should be thankful. He, has, he is not having cuddly, soft relaxation time. He is violently wielding the sword of the Spirit so as to equip himself and the saints for the work of ministry of killing sin in our lives so that sin does not kill us. When we hear this word by faith, it gives us awareness of sin and our trials. Kind of like Ed Welch said, it sharpens our senses. It gives us an ability to see that sin. It makes us steadfast, resilient, and refined like steel. And on the flip side of that, adversely, if we abandon the word here and resort to emails, cute stories, and opinions, we will be the first to tuck tail and run when times get hard. Absolutely. That doesn't produce steadfastness. But it is a sword-wielding leader who will walk through the fire with you. He'll walk through it with you. It's a sword-wielding leader who will walk through the fire with you and joyfully praise God with you on the other side when the smoke is settled and God has again proven himself to be faithful and worthy of praise. It's a beautiful thing when we rightly handle the word. So what does that mean for you in a day-to-day instance? When you're sitting in your cubicle, your break room, or the lunch table with your Bible, and someone asks, what are you doing? Don't just say reading your Bible. Say, you look up at them with your helmet of salvation on. And you say, I'm violently wielding the sword of the Spirit. Sin desires to kill me, but I'm on the offensive and I will put it to death before it has a chance. Before it rears its ugly head, I'm going to cut it off. That's what you tell them in your cubicle. Tell me how it goes. I can't wait to hear. (laughs) Reading my Bible? No, you're violently wielding the sword of the Spirit. So the most important part of understanding how to put sin to death is knowing that the only sin that you can kill is forgiven sin. And we kill it by the Spirit, wielding the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You can't put sin to death any other way. The second most important point is that, hear this, you cannot do this alone because God has not called you to do this alone. Hear that again. You can't put sin to death in your life. You cannot kill it and murder it violently the way God calls you to do, hacking and gouging. You cannot do that by yourself because God has not called you to do that by yourself. The verse that we read, you don't have to turn back there, but that verse that we read in 2 Corinthians about being given the Spirit as a seal and a guarantee, this is actually how it reads. It is God who establishes us with you in Christ. Y'all see that? That's a picture of community. It is God. As He calls you to put sin to death and He gives you the Spirit to do so, it is God who has called us, who establishes us with you in Christ. It's a picture of community. It's like saying establishes me with you or you with them or him with her. It's something that God does. It's a picture of community. And it's beautiful. It's the church. See, searchability and accountability and teachability don't happen in solitude. They don't happen in solitude. We have such a tendency when sin rears its ugly head in our lives rather than in a community taking the sword of the Spirit and cutting its head off, we have such a tendency to kind of retreat and go by ourselves. And that's when you get those phone calls, hey, where you been? Oh, I'm fine, just been busy. Bull, sin is eating you. It's not about being busy. We don't retreat. Searchability and accountability and teachability don't happen in solitude. The very means by which we put sin to death that God created only exists in community. He made it that way. 
Put sin to death. You've got to do it by the Spirit. I'm giving you the Spirit, but I'm giving you the Spirit in community. That's the way we are able to put sin to death. It's the only means that God's created. Turn back to Colossians 3. Colossians 3, that long list of those sins we put to death. This is interesting because it gives us another example of how we do not do this on your own. I'm telling you, probably, as I'm sitting here thinking, there's probably nothing worse that that we could think of than just airing out our sins with anybody. But it must take place. It must happen. I remember when I first read in James about if we confess our sins to one another, then we'll be I'm like, confess my sins to one another? That's a horrible idea. I don't want people to know my, my business. But God's design is that it happens in community. So pride can't exist. Oh, what, what keeps you from confessing a sin? Pride. What's pride? Oh, a sin. You see how that works? Sin wants to dull you and numb your senses to its reality. Now listen to this in Colossians 3. That long list that we have there in verse 5. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, and lying. As I read that list, I realized that almost, almost, and I'll address the ones that aren't, almost everything on that list can happen alone. Almost everything listed there about the things that we're supposed to put to death can happen by yourself, isolated, in a room with the door closed. Almost every single thing listed there. I can sit around and be angry by myself all day long. But these are the things we're to put to death. And it's interesting because even the few things that are mentioned in that list that involve another person, like lying or slander, like you have to lie to someone, it only promotes division. It doesn't promote community. So the point here is that this long list of things we're to put to death, they work against the community that God designed with the Spirit for you to exist in to put your sin to death. That's why we put these things to death. They're all things we can experience by ourselves. So... The thing that we see next, though, is that to really put sin to death in our lives takes more than just stop doing the bad things. It takes more than that. There's another step to putting sin to death. It's not just stop being angry. That's not enough to put sin to death. Yes, put it to death. Cut its head off. Kill it violently. Yes. But there's more to it. And the more uh, comes in verse 12 through 16. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You hear the community? And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in One body, be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you as a community richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs together like we've done this morning, with thankfulness in your hearts to God, the one who put this whole thing together, to God who gave you the Spirit and created this community. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Everything that I just read in that long list can only be experienced in community. I cannot experience compassion by myself. I either have to have someone who's an object of my compassion or I'm an object of someone else's compassion, but I certainly cannot experience it by myself. Kindness, humility, meekness, patience. There has to be another person in a community where you have the Spirit together, where you want to put sin to death together to experience these things. So it must happen in community. That's why the title of the message is A Violent Community of Faith. We might be changing the name of the church, I'm not sure. Um, So what is this practically and realistically? What is this practically and realistically? A violent community of faith is a people who know that sin desires to kill us, not just physically, but with an eternal spiritual death. So we take seriously the call to put sin to death by regularly consistently meeting with our community of faith in our homes, at Bible studies, on Wednesday nights, on Sunday mornings, 
knowing that we are truly being equipped for a work of ministry. The work of ministry is not showing up on a Sunday morning and that's it. When you're at those Bible studies and you're at a Wednesday night study and you're meeting with someone in your home and you're having a lunch and you're in the middle of accountability and all these different things that are discipleship, you are being equipped for a work of ministry. And in large part, yes, that is a work of ministry, but you're being equipped for more. And it's this equipping that leads to our living rooms and our children's bedrooms as we sit together and violently wield the sword of the Spirit with our kids, helping each other to identify sin so that we can rightly murder the sin. When an individual, and this is, this is something I want us to see as we close, that when an individual in the body suffers from sin, they're not just that individual over there that's suffering from sin. When an individual in the body is wounded or is tripped up or is being held hostage in a sense by a sin, when an individual in the body suffers from sin, the entire body is wounded. Remember, there's one body. That's what it said in Colossians 3. We're called to one body. Ephesians 4 says there's, there's one church, one bride, one body, one Christ, one baptism. There's oneness there. And so if someone in the body is suffering from sin, the whole body is suffering. The whole body is wounded. And when the church stands, wounded by sin, with our hands in our pockets, never on the offensive, the stakes are very high. That's why we're called to put sin to death. The stakes are very high for this reason. The church is not flourishing the way that God designed for the church to flourish. And God's not receiving from that church the glory and the honor that He rightly deserves. So the stakes are high. If we see someone else who's being tripped up by sin and they're wounded and they're hurt, or we see it in our own lives, we do not stand around with our hands in our pockets. We wield the sword of the Spirit. and We violently put sin to death. And it's hard. It's very hard. There's nothing easy about anything we've talked about this morning. I got to thinking about how someone would respond to this. If they've been, I'm thinking about if, if, you, if you've never heard what it means to put sin to death or if you've never studied your Bible hardly at all and you don't, you don't know where it is or, or you've kind of abandoned the Scriptures. I was thinking about how that must feel as you're called to something so great as to violently put sin to death in your life. And what I pictured was a small child. I pictured a small child trying to lift some big heavy sword like Excalibur or something like some little bitty two-year-old trying to lift it up and you just can't even hold the sword up, much less do anything with it. And I want you all to know that at first, the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, may seem too heavy to lift. At first, it may seem like I can't even get this thing off the ground, much less use it for anything. But God has given you the Spirit. For those who are children in Christ, God has given you the Spirit. So over time, in community... You will not only be able to lift that sword, but you will become a skilled warrior, able to foresee sin's next move before it is made, so that you may rightly strike it dead, killing it before it kills you. I wanted to read a couple verses to close. In 2 Timothy, you don't have to turn to them. In 2 Timothy uh, 3.16, it says that all Scripture, the sword, is breathed out by God, and it says that it's profitable for reproof and correction. So that means that there's sin in your life. On your best day, you still have sin to put to death. He's talking to a people, a church, a people in community with the spirit that he's given them. And he's saying, you need this because it's profitable for reproof and corrected. That means there's sin that needs to be reproved and needs to be corrected and needs to be put to death. In 1 John 1, 8 through 8-9, it says this. If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a beautiful picture. He provides the very thing that He requires. He says, put sin to death. And as you're working through that in community by the work of the Spirit, you confess your sins to me, and guess what? I, God, cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And forgive you. But don't be fooled. Don't say there's no sin. I'd like to close by reading one of the scariest pieces of scripture that, uh, that I've ever read. It's in 1 John chapter 3. I just want to close with this reading. And as I read this, I want you all to think about the command. I want you all to think about Jesus' over-the-top words of hack and gouge and kill sin. Violently murder it in community. 
Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. This is scary. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. Put it to death. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. That's what Piper meant when he said, our membership is a sham and our baptism is a fraud. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, this is terrifying. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, who lets it go on and doesn't look to put it to death, is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Put sin to death. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now pray with me. God, as we enter into another time of of, um, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another, as we put to practice the community that you designed by the work of the Spirit, my prayer is that even as we sing, you would be making us mindful of those sins in our life that are still there. The Word says, if we say there's no sin, we're deceived. But there must be, we must see the sin, we must confess the sin, and we know that you are faithful to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God, I pray that as we sing, I pray that as we give of our tithes and offerings, I pray that as we continue to think about the Word, that you would help us, as you have said you would, by the work of the Spirit, to violently murder the sin in our lives. And I pray that we would be eager, if we have not been eager before this, to get to work together in community, A community where love exists and there's perfect harmony and there's perfect unity in Christ. That we would be eager to get to work together, putting sin to death, knowing that on our best day we still have sin to put to death. God, we thank you for the Spirit. We thank you for calling us to something that seems so huge, yet then comforting us and knowing that you provide the very thing that's required for us to put sin to death. We thank you for the Spirit. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the finished work of the cross so that we might have any opportunity to put forgiven sins to death. Lord, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.